Hello, I'm Lubin, and welcome to the second episode of the Bristol Law Review podcast. I am so glad you joined us. You're showing awesome commitment. If you want a little memory jog, in our last episode we explored what populism actually means, why it arises, if it is a good thing, and some of the places it has grown in. This time around, I want to look at EU populism's effects on the EU legal order, notably its effect on fundamental constitutional principles and its propensity to facilitate democratic backsliding, notably in Hungary and Poland. Of course, there is no better individual to explore this issue with than Phil Cyrus, professor of EU law at the University of Bristol. In fact, next year, Phil will be on study leave in order to explore this very issue we're talking about today, namely the options that the EU has to deal with democratic backsliding, the rule of law issues in Hungary and Poland, looking at what is legally possible and the political implications of those options. This is because Phil believes that the current options are simply not enough though there is an important need to deal with these issues in order to protect the EU legal order. Many of you have already met him, but for those who have not, I'm happy to, to introduce you to his distinctive voice. So without further await, hello, Phil. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. So I wanted to start by introducing EU legal supremacy. It is this fundamental principle of EU law, but what exactly is it? As conceived by the Court of Justice, it is very, very straightforward. Um, EU law is to take priority over all rules of national law, and supremacy is absolute. I guess it's interesting to say that this version of supremacy um, isn't obvious from the wording of the treaty, but it derives from the court's interpretation of the treaty. And essentially the court's claim is that EU law wouldn't work properly if national law, including national constitutional law, could in any circumstances take priority over EU legal obligations. So I guess that is the um, court of justice's very straightforward, very absolute version of the supremacy doctrine. And the difficulties have come about because of the fact that national courts haven't accepted the doctrine of supremacy, at least in the unqualified form which the Court of Justice um, expresses it in. So supremacy is crucial in order to ensure that the laws of the single market work. Clearly, without supremacy, there is no uniformity, and seemingly the central forum for dialogue, namely the EU institutions, are undermined and lose all of their authority. However, there is this disconnect between the Court of Justice's interpretation of supremacy and that of national courts. It is good to note that the CJEU's interpretation, though not found in the treaties, which are essentially the EU's constitution, has been added to a declaration in the Treaty of Lisbon, but not a binding article. So what is the view that national courts have on supremacy? Essentially, in accordance with sort of orthodox international law, that the domestic effects of international treaties are not something which an international body can dictate, but they are a matter for domestic constitutional law. And I think courts across the EU ended up 
in a position where they were prepared to accord primacy to EU law over conflicting provisions of national law, but not on the basis that they were following the instruction of the Court of Justice, or because of the virtue of the special nature of EU law, or because they endorsed the reasoning of the Court of Justice. But instead, they gave primacy to EU law because essentially there was something in national law which authorised them to do so. And we see that in the UK. I don't think I need to talk about the UK case law. We know about Factor Tame, Miller, etc. And we also see it in, in Germany, um, where um, there's an interpretation of the German constitution, which allows German courts to give effect to um, EU law ahead of conflicting provisions of German law. But in the German situation, there have been I guess, substantive difficulties, and there are substantive difficulties in relation to um, fundamental rights and what to do if EU law might infringe fundamental rights protected in the German constitution. And there are also big questions about the outer limits of the EU's competence. So who decides whether something counts as EU law such that it takes priority over German law? Who determines whether something is validly EU law or not? And I guess the German case law as it's developed over the years lays down certain at least theoretical red lines, if, if one may express it like that, um, essentially defining situations in which EU law may not be applied um, ahead of national constitutional law. But these were, up until recently, kind of theoretical situations, and it led to claims, I guess, that the German court's um, bark was worse than its bite. That is precisely what I find interesting. We hear a lot about democratic backsliding in Eastern Europe and the fight between the CGEU and Hungary, but perhaps the biggest threat to this traditional reading of EU legal supremacy has come from the German Federal Constitutional Court, the FCC. The FCC is perhaps the most respected constitutional court on the planet, certainly one of the most powerful, and holds great sway not only in Germany, but across Europe and the world. And that, I guess, eventually led to the PSPP decision concerning what was essentially the EU's competence in introducing a quantitative easing program, EMU. In that case, the FCC, a national court, stated that it disagreed with the CGEU judgment and would thus ignore it, effectively undermining EU legal supremacy. In the PSPP case, which you mentioned, which is one of a string of cases around um, economic and monetary union, as you just said, the German Federal Constitutional Court held for the first time that a decision of the Court of Justice on the legality of aspects of management of EMU was ultra vires. And so that particular decision of the Court of Justice um, did not bind Germany. And as you say, that, that created something of an outcry. It was a situation in which we had um, the um, constitutional court of one of the um, prime member states of the EU essentially saying that there were situations, real situations, in which they would not follow the lead of the Court of Justice and in which um, Germany would not regard itself as being bound by the case law of the, of, of, of the Court of Justice. And so we're in a situation where you don't just have a 
theoretical gap or, or defect, if you like, in, in the EU legal order. You have a real situation, albeit that it is limited to the situation of economic and monetary union, where the German courts are not accepting the supremacy of EU law and are asserting their own understanding of what the demands of the EU legal order might be. Eventually, the issue was, of course, politically resolved with the German government intervening to reassert the EU legal supremacy that is so central to ensuring the EU's functioning. I think that that precisely expresses this dichotomy that I see, wherein there is this conservative legacy judiciary that has a very traditional understanding of the national constitutional order, wherein the national constitution rigidly sits on top and the national regime allows EU law entry almost pragmatically. Whereas, on the other hand, there is a more progressive understanding on the part of the government and political elite, which wishes to see EU law's development, understand its economic benefits, and wishes to see the single market in EU and the EU grow. However, many states do not have this dichotomy, and many of the ultra-conservative populist regimes in Eastern Europe found themselves supporting the FCC decision, like Poland and Hungary. In fact, the authority that the FCC has meant that the decision sort of legitimized these countries as illiberal crusades against the EU, which is very ironic because the FCC's decision to oppose EU law and to contend with the EU is usually grounded in a wish to ensure the strength of EU rights, to ensure that it's on the same level as German rights, which is a very liberal cause. Yeah, th yes, thank you. I mean, it, it's, it's quite difficult to do justice to what's been going on in Poland and Hungary. And I, I think there, there is now a, a growing literature which explores um, the nature of the rule of law um, crisis in both countries. Um, we have seen um, wholesale attacks on rights, in particular LGBTQ rights. We've seen attacks on the rule of law, on the independence of courts. Um, and I, I think there are a lot of problematic developments of the sort that you associate with, I guess, populist, authoritarian type um, regimes, which interestingly are seem to have quite high levels of popularity, I think, I think in, 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 in both Poland and Hungary, um, but which are, I think, quite antagonistic to the very nature of the EU legal order and the supremacy of the EU legal order. And I think what the difference, I, th I think this is an important difference between the situation in PSPP and Germany and the situation in Poland and Hungary, is that in Germany there were there have been certain narrow specific disagreements, which, as you said, I think, are can be relatively easily resolved at the political level. And then when they are resolved at the political level, the tension sort of disappears from the legal side. In, in relation to Hungary and Poland, there is, I think, a stronger political reaction against the European Union. Um, and in that situation, um, we, 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 we find ourselves in, in a very difficult situation. And I think it is harder for um, 
any sense of sort of peace to prevail as between um, the Court of Justice and um, the, the, the courts, which are often sort of captured courts um, in, in, in Poland and Hungary. And I, I think what we'll go on to talk about is the range of options, if you like, available to um, the EU institutions, both legal and political, in order to try and find some sort of way of resolving the crisis. But there is a, a wholesale attack on the legitimacy of EU law and very, very broad claims that um, there is nothing in EU law which can take away from the primacy of the Hungarian and Polish constitutions. Yes, but it seems that the idea of contending EU legal supremacy has become mainstream, even if it is frankly unsustainable. In the recent French election, we saw both the left and right talk about disregarding EU law. Law essentially exists to the extent that it is accepted, i.e. has legitimacy. So this is an existential threat to the EU, especially in Hungary and Poland, where there is a questioning of whether EU law could ever be supreme over national law. As a result, we see a complete capture of the press in Eastern Europe, a rewriting of the national constitutions to fit party agendas, the creation of judicial disciplinary groups that the government controls and through which the government controls court decisions the lowering of judicial pension ages to purge court independence. So what are the EU's options? Um, yeah, I'm sorry, just to comment first, your, your, your summary is a very good one. I think you're right to draw attention to the fact that it isn't just in Poland and Hungary, but this sort of assertion of national sovereignty, of national constitutionalism is more widespread than that. You're, you're right to mention the French election. Obviously, people in the UK will have um, strong memories of Brexit and the way in which that debate has been unfolding and, 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 and continues to unfold. So I, I, I think there is a broad issue about um, an increasing number of member states who are aggressively asserting national sovereignty and doing so in a way which does threaten the EU legal order or does threaten supremacy as, as expressed by the Court of Justice. And to, to answer your question, there are a range of things which um, the EU can do or has tried to do. And as I think I'll go through them, you, we, we'll see that um, a, a number of them haven't proved to be effective or as effective as some in the EU institutions might like. And so, People are always on search, I think, for other ways in which it might be possible for the EU to respond, and I'll, I'll talk about some of those as well. Um, I think the first option for um, ensuring that member states comply with EU law is Article 258, um, the enforcement action. So the Commission is able to bring cases before the Court of Justice, um, get the Court of Justice to declare that the member state in question has breached EU law. And it is possible under Article 260 then to impose fines as well. Um, that relies on the Commission being willing to bring Article 258 actions and then ultimately relies on the member states being willing to go along with or accept 
the judgments of the Court of Justice under Article 258. And one of the things that we have seen in relation to both Poland and Hungary, actually, is that the Commission has seemed to be very reluctant to act and very reluctant to use Article um, 258. There's a lot of legal commentary on this. People like Laurent Petsch, um, Daniel Kellerman have been writing about this. Um, and there, there, there are various promises in, in, in some of the cases which the Poland and or Hungary have made to the Commission, which these writers feel that the Commission has been all too ready to accept various pledges and milestones which are said not to be worth the paper that they are written on. Um, so Article 258 does provide a way of um, having the Court of Justice rule that the member state is in breach, possibly imposing a fine, but there's a question as to how effective that, 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 that will ultimately be. And, and there have been fines imposed on Poland and to the best of my knowledge, at least, I, I, I don't think these fines are being paid and I don't think there's a realistic expectation that these fines will be paid either. Another option is um, Article 7 of the treaties, which provides for um, the suspension of, of voting rights, etc., of, of, of member states. And again, this is a political, probably more than a legal process, but one of the key problems with it is that it relies on unanimity and the feeling is always that it has been impossible to, to, to look, bring any sort of Article 7 action um, against Poland or Hungary because the other, well, one or the other would, would support the state against which Article 7 proceedings are being brought. So this is one situation where I guess unanimity is a huge problem for the EU. Another sort of traditional route for sort of enforcing EU law is based on the Article 267 procedure and the judicial dialogue between um, national courts and the Court of Justice. So if national courts have questions about the way in which EU law is, is supposed to operate, they can ask questions of the Court of Justice and the Court of Justice can give them an answer. And that dialogue, certainly in, in the sort of tradition of constitutional pluralism, is seen to be very, very important for the functioning of of, of, of the EU legal order. If one looks at the recent interactions between the Court of Justice and the Polish and the Hungarian courts, one sees very little of, in, in terms of productive dialogue, one sees serious disagreement, not real engagement with the other side, both sides sticking to their guns, and it seems to be that it's a dialogue of the deaf, if you like. It, it, it isn't something which is going anywhere. So those are the legal options, Article 258, Article 7, and Article 267. But as you said, they all have problems, political and legal stalemate, and a propensity for both sides to stick to their guns. So what other mechanisms can be looked at? What seems to have superseded those things is more and more use of um, what's been termed rule of law conditionality. So essentially, um, both Poland and Hungary are countries which receive quite a lot of structural funds and aid from the EU. And there, there, there's been a mechanism created um, in um, agreed in late 2020, which essentially makes the award of these funds subject to certain um, rule of law requirements. And 
what 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 has happened is that there has been pressure put on both Poland and Hungary in relation to the receipt of those funds. Again, there are question marks about how rigorous the Commission is being, whether they're they're allowing the member states too much leeway. Um, And there's also been an angry reaction from um, the member states. So just this month in in, in July um, 2022, um, the, the, the Hungarian response to a, a, a call from the European Parliament for the Commission not to invest funds in, in Hungary. Um, Hungary said that this amounts to blackmail and it's all based on an unfair, unclear procedures based on unfounded accusations. So there's a, any attempt to impose rule of law conditionality is being met by legal responses and political responses in, in, in Poland and Hungary. And again, it's, it's difficult to know how effective that might be as a strategy. So we've got, I don't know, a, a, a whole arsenal, I guess, of, 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 of legal and political means which are available to the um, EU. And yet, none of them seem to be or seem to have much prospect even of being particularly influential and successful in getting Hungary and Poland to change tack. And given, I think, the weakness of, 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 of these sort of existing routes, one starts to think about whether there might be other options, which, or whether the treaties could perhaps be amended so as to create other options um, and other ways in which to, 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 to seek to um, ensure that Hungary and Poland don't infringe on the rule of law. So, and I, I think one, one, uh, one is particularly interesting, which, which has been mooted quite a lot in the literature, which is whether there should be any sort of procedure for expelling a member state from the union. Um, some people have tried to say that, uh, to, to try to define this in terms of a, uh, to, to suggest that the member states have by their conducts implicitly triggered Article 50 and so indicated a desire to leave the European Union. I think that's a bit far-fetched. Um, but I think it would it may be possible to seek to amend the treaty and to seek to have provision there for the expulsion of particular states from the union. And it's very interesting to think in terms of the way accession to the EU works, um, the way voluntary departure from the EU works, and the way there is no procedure for the expulsion of of, of member states from the treaty. Um, the last one I'll, I'll mention is perhaps, and this probably goes back to the heart of the supremacy debate, is whether there might be some way of reimagining the supremacy doctrine or the relationship between national law and EU law. Um, from the very beginning, from the 1960s, there has been a disconnect between the way in which the Court of Justice sees the supremacy of EU law and the way in which national courts see see the relationship between national law and EU law. And is it possible to come up with a formulation or a way of expressing the supremacy of EU law um, which will brook slightly less opposition? So, So a slightly perhaps less unqualified assertion of supremacy of EU law on the part of the Court of Justice, which in turn might be better received by the courts of the member states. And then I think you you start getting into very difficult territory about 
which circumstances it, it might be circumstances in which um, national constitutional concerns may be able to trump the, 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 the EU legal order, or at least you start thinking about mechanisms to reconcile concerns about the um, supremacy of the EU legal order and, and national constitutional law. So there's, I, I've spoken for, for, for a long time there, that there, there, there are lots of options. If you like, the existing options are Article 258, Article, 2, Article 7 and Article 267 and rule of law conditionality. And then there might be more speculative options that, that, that we, we, we might benefit from thinking about. So expulsion from the treaties or perhaps even more radically, some sort of reimagination of the supremacy doctrine. Um, and I think the challenge is how to deal with the fact that we have not just a legal conflict with Poland and Hungary, but also I think a very profound political conflict between the EU institutions and Poland and Hungary. And the way any organisation functions in order to resolve those differences, I think is, is difficult and very, very important. There obviously needs to be a judicial dialogue. The pressure which the FCC put on the EU based on its rights-based constitutional system has ensured a rights-based system throughout the EU. But ironically, those very same tools for constitutional dialogue are now being exploited to undermine the EU. Also, how realistic are some of these other options you talk about, like treaty revision, given that that requires unanimity? Likewise, could a reimagining of EU legal supremacy, as you talk about, lead to a retreat from this central doctrine, which is crucial to the EU functioning? What I think is necessary is a better understanding of EU law and its nature. An understanding that EU law is national law. It is created by a democratically elected EU parliament and democratically accountable ministers in the EU Council. There must be an understanding that EU law is not some foreign law or some international law. It is law with national legitimacy created by democrat nationally democratically accountable individuals. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think those are very interesting points. I, I totally take on board what you say about um, treaty revision. Treaty revision does involve unanimity and... I think in the current circumstances, it is quite difficult to see that there would be um, approval from all the member states for something like, say, um, a provision that would allow a member state to be expelled from the union. Um, there's the second one about the, the way in which um, supremacy can be reimagined and whether it amounts to retreat. Um, I think there is a lot to think about there. I tend to go back to the idea that the EU legal order isn't just about uniformity, it's also to some extent about difference and accommodating national differences. And you see the respect in Article 4.2, for instance, of the treaties, the, 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 the respect which the EU has to show for national constitutional identities. And I, I, I think that possibly the answer to all this relies on as you said, actually, so, so, so some sort of better understanding of the nature of the relationship between national and um, EU law and of, of, of the 
strength of the obligation that member states in the EU have to give effect to EU law and the benefits that giving effect to EU law has um, for their citizens and for other EU citizens. I, I, I think it's, it's a point where, where I think I have a slight issue with the way in which the court has formulated its supremacy doctrine. I think it risks not giving enough weight to the legitimate national constitutional concerns. And I think now these national constitutional concerns are very much coming to the fore and we, 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 we need to find a way of coexisting. Whether that, I, I'm not quite, where I'm uncertain is quite how far that coexisting goes. I'm not quite sure that it is necessary for the EU to be able to coexist with a regime like the Orban regime in Hungary, but I think it is necessary for the EU to be able to accommodate or to find a way of distinguishing between legitimate and illegitimate um, national constitutional concerns. So if we go right back to the start of the German case law with Internationale Handelsgesellschaft, the, the concern there was, I think, a concern which the German courts were rightly um, worried about. So, so the, the, their question was essentially, what if an EU law comes into being somehow via the EU legal um, decision-making process, which infringes the German constitution. Why should we give effect to such a law ahead of German, the, the German constitution? And possibly the whole saga about the development of fundamental rights in the EU involved the EU changing its position and essentially it, proving or showing to the German court that that sort of situation wouldn't arise because the level of fundamental rights protection in the EU was good enough. So again, I, I think that, that there could be something similar in relation to some, at least, of the constitutional concerns which are raised by member states and some comfort to be given to the member states that those sorts of constitutional concerns would be taken seriously. And I think part of my, or some of my issue a slight issue with the Court of Justice's case law is that it doesn't allow the legitimate concerns of the member states to be given enough of a voice. Now, I think it is also important to consider the way in which things might have changed. There are two issues I wish to look at. The first is this conditionality note, especially recently the COVID-19 support being connected to rule of law requirements. Countries like Poland and Hungary, in particular in the face of um, shocks, economic shocks, and I think COVID uh, certainly was an economic shock, um, rely on funds from the EU. And that puts the EU in a strong position. And I think that the EU is able to exert quite a lot of leverage over those countries by essentially holding control of the purse strings. Um, but I, I think in this instance, it is possible to use, if you like, the, the, the need that Hungary and Poland have for EU funds um, in order to persuade, strongly persuade, almost force the country to move in a particular direction. I think that there is a strong appetite in particular from what I can gather within the European Parliament um, for that to happen. And I think that the signs at the moment at least are that the commission is not prepared to be so bold and is treading rather more carefully um again there's quite a lot of academic 
commentary which is extremely critical of the Commission for being so careful. Um, I, again, I, I, I struggle to come to a strong view. I can understand the desires to push um, hard against Poland and Hungary in this situation. I can also, I guess, see the worries associated with pushing too hard and with allowing the EU to be seen as a sort of threat around which authoritarian leaders can rally and can cement their position domestically. I think I think that is part of what is in the Commission's head when it is being reluctant to act. Yeah, the second issue I wish to cover is the Ukraine war. We noted how in Article 7 proceedings, i.e. the nuclear option to suspend a member state's rights, there is a necessity for all states except for the disciplined state to accept the Article 7 nuclear option, which has meant that Poland can protect Hungary and Hungary can protect Poland. However, this Polish-Hungarian relationship might be strained by the drastically different Ukraine policies the states have adopted. On the one hand, Poland has shown incredible support for Ukraine, accepted the cutting of gas supplies from Russia, taken in refugees, been adamant about a hard line on Russian military support. On the other hand, Hungary has even accepted a gas deal with Russia, refuses to take a hard stand, even talks negatively on Ukraine and emphasizes its economic interests with Russia. There's lots of thoughts that I have about the um, war in U Ukraine. Um, you drew, drew attention very well, I think, to the very, very different position that Poland and Hungary have adopted on the issue. And I mean, it's, it's natural, I think, to speculate as to whether or not that might lead to a fracturing of the sort of unity and the support which Poland and Hungary have given to each other. Um, the, the, the other big aspect, I think, of the Ukraine war and the Ukraine situation is the um, keenness with which many in the EU have reacted to the possibility of Ukraine acceding to the EU. This was clearly one of Putin's big worries and the EU institutions have acted I think quickly and with a lot of sort of common purpose in order to make it possible for Ukraine at least to have now gained um, candidate status. And that, that shows that when the political will is there, when something important is seen to be at stake, the EU can surprise people and can move rather more quickly than it usually does. Um, for what it's worth, I think the we won't be seeing Ukraine as a member state of the EU anytime soon, but I think they have done what is necessary to create some sort of political momentum and to show very clearly um, that Ukraine's aspirations are, are, are not just an impossible pipe dream. They're something which, which is certainly going to be considered over time. So I, I, I think that, that there's an indication there that things that might have been difficult do become possible, um, given political imperatives, given strong enough political incentives. And again, I, I, I think that the 
situation with the rule of law. I think, I, mean, I, I don't know if you, you, you heard the sort of speech which Victor Orban gave last week. Um, it, it, I, I think the, the, the feeling that something has to be done and the, um, or the, the, the Orban regime is, is damaging for, for, for the EU is, I think, getting stronger and stronger. But I, I, I think that the, the, there is an appetite to do something and to do something against the fact that we have um, I think two pretty much profoundly undemocratic regimes and uh, if they are allowed to continue to be in the EU and to rail against EU law that will be hugely damaging. Well that was everything I have prepared and I think this has been a very fruitful discussion so I thank you very much Phil for joining us. This will help a lot of students and might be interesting for for some non-students, who knows? Um, so that brings our second episode of the Bristol Law Review podcast to an end. Thank you very much for joining us. I just hope you'll have a little more tenacity to join us next week because I have a real treat then. We'll be looking at populism in the UK. Yes, our jurisdiction, notably by looking at those Miller cases that we have read perhaps a billion times. I'm still reading them, so I'm counting up still. But we will have a very interesting discussion about legitimacy and the way that those decisions reflect populism in the UK. So I'm very excited to see you there. Please don't cancel our plans and have a good rest of your day. Bye-bye.